Welcome back to Blood, Bodies, and Bones, a podcast about true crimes, murder mysteries, hauntings, urban legends, and more. I'm your host, Jay. On today's episode, I'm going to share with you a story that started with trust and how incredibly important it was to really get to know someone. Whether that be a close friend, sibling, partner, parent, or parent-like figure, when placed in the right hands, it can be reassuring and comforting knowing that someone will look out for you and have your back. This is something that Betty and Lester Likens were likely looking for when they agreed to have their two daughters, Sylvia and Jenny, stay with Gertrude Banaszewski and her seven children. The two sisters would have to be comfortable and trust that everything would be okay while they stayed there. However, any trust that was built between Gertrude and the two girls while they lived at the Banaszewski home would quickly deteriorate. On October 26, 1965, police would receive a call to the East New York Street home in Indiana, Indianapolis. Upon their arrival, Gertrude handed them a letter from Sylvia. While there, Sylvia's sister, Jenny, managed to whisper to one of the officers, Get me out of here and I will tell you everything. This, along with her statement and what was uncovered, would be described as the most enduring nightmare in Indianapolis true crime history. This is Blood, Bodies, and Bones, The Torture Mother. Before I start, I want to warn you that the content included in this episode may be disturbing and graphic for some listeners. Born on September 19, 1929, Gertrude Van Fossen was the third of six children. Not too much was known about her as a child, although we do know that at the age of 11, she watched her father, with whom she shared a close bond with, die from a heart attack. Gertrude would later drop out of school at the age of 16 and marry 18-year-old John Banaszewski. It was reported that John had a temper and would often beat his wife. The couple would divorce just after 10 years of marriage, with Gertrude being granted custody of their children. Her second marriage to Edward Guthrie would last just three months, ending in divorce. The couple reconciled and married a second time, and would have two children together. However, the pair would divorce again in 1963, just after seven years of marriage. Gertrude would then begin an affair and move in with 23-year-old Dennis Lee Wright. As with John Banaszewski, Wright would also abuse Gertrude. She would become pregnant by Wright, but later miscarry. Gertrude would become pregnant a second time and gave birth to her last and seventh child, Dennis Jr. However, shortly after the birth of his son, Wright disappeared and abandoned Gertrude, leaving her to take care of her children. During this time, Gertrude took odd jobs like babysitting to support herself and her children. She also received child support from her first husband, John. It was at this time that Gertrude's daughter, Paula, who was 17, became pregnant after having an affair with a married man. 16-year-old Sylvia Likens was the third of five children of Betty and Lester Likens. The two older siblings, twins Diana and Daniel, were two years older than Sylvia, and the twins Jenny and Benny were two years younger. Growing up, Sylvia often stayed with relatives or acquaintances of her parents, as both Betty and Lester toured with the circus as carnival workers. By the time Sylvia was 16, she had already lived at 14 different addresses. According to the Indy Star, a local newspaper, although Lester only had an 8th grade education, he had worked a lot of different jobs in order to make a living. Lester had a laundry route, worked in a factory, and had even owned a small but unsuccessful restaurant. In the summer of 1965, both Lester and Betty decided to return to work with the circus. The parents had to find someone to look after four of their children, as Diana was already married at the time. The two boys, Daniel and Benny, were sent to live with their grandparents, leaving only Sylvia and Jenny in need of a place to stay. 
Of the two sisters, Jenny was shy and insecure, while Sylvia was outwardly confident and went by the nickname Cookie. Lester and Betty were introduced to Gertrude by a mutual friend. Gertrude agreed to take in the two sisters as boarders for $20 a week. The first couple of weeks went relatively well, with the two sisters even attending church with the family. It was reported that Sylvia and the eldest of the Benazuski children, Paula, didn't get along very well. One week, a payment did not show on the day that Gertrude was expecting it to arrive. According to a later testimony from Jenny, Gertrude, quote, took us upstairs, and she slapped me, and said, well, I took care of you two for a week for nothing. Gertrude forced the two sisters to lie across her bed while she used a paddle to punish them, beating their buttocks. She would continue punishing the two sisters on a regular basis for various offenses using this method. Gertrude had even used matches to burn Sylvia's fingertips when she was suspected of stealing. In August 1965, Gertrude reportedly overheard Sylvia remarking that she once had a boy feel her up. This comment sent Gertrude into a rage, and she accused Sylvia of being a prostitute, and told the rest of the house that Sylvia was pregnant because she let a boy touch her. The mother of seven then attacked Sylvia, repeatedly kicking her in the crotch. After the assault, Sylvia went to sit down in a chair, however Paula threw her out of the chair. The physical abuse would become worse, with Gertrude allowing her children to use Sylvia as a quote-unquote plaything, with games ranging from beatings to pushing her down the stairs. According to Jenny, as revenge, the two sisters told others in their school that they both saw Paula and Stephanie Benazuski having sex with boys for money. After hearing this story, Stephanie's 15-year-old boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, went to the Benazuski residence and proceeded to beat Sylvia. It was from this point on that Gertrude encouraged Coy to make frequent visits to the home, in which she would tell him to practice his judo on Sylvia. Gertrude did not stop there, though. She managed to speak to one of Sylvia's best friends, Anna Sisko. Benazuski convinced the 13-year-old that Sylvia was telling boys at school that Anna's mother was promiscuous. Gertrude then took Anna to see Sylvia, encouraging her to violently attack the 16-year-old. Gertrude then repeated this pattern with one of Paula's friends, Judy Duke, pitting her against Sylvia in a fist fight. Benazuski instructed Jenny to punch her older sister during this fight, but when Jenny refused, Gertrude turned physical on the 14-year-old, punching her in the face until she finally agreed to physically assault her sister Sylvia. During this time, the vacant home next door to the Benazuskis was purchased by a middle-aged couple named Phyllis and Raymond Vermillion. The couple had arranged a backyard barbecue to become acquainted with their new next-door neighbors. Phyllis had noticed that Sylvia had a pronounced black eye, to which Paula proudly admitted that she was the one who did it. It was also reported that during the barbecue, Paula threw a glass of steaming water in Sylvia's face at the instruction of her mother. Both Phyllis and Raymond did not report this incident to the authorities. Approximately two months later, Phyllis would be at the Banaszewski residence, when she witnessed Paula beat Sylvia with a belt. Again, Phyllis neglected to report this to the authorities. Sylvia had told Gertrude that she needed a sweatsuit for her high school gym class, and when Gertrude told her that they couldn't afford one, Sylvia stole one from the school. Gertrude would later question Sylvia about her new attire, coercing Sylvia into confessing. So, Gertrude decided to punish Sylvia and cure her of her ways by burning the tips of her fingers with a lit cigarette. Afterwards, she was made to bend over while she was whipped with her belt. This was when the smokers in the Banazuski home started to extinguish their cigarettes on Sylvia's body. One day, Sylvia had left to sell soda bottles for cash, and when she returned home later, Gertrude accused her of prostitution. 
Gertrude decided again that Sylvia needed to be embarrassed and punished for this. So she took Sylvia into the living room and made her strip naked in front of the Banaszewski boys and some of their friends, threatening to beat Sylvia if she didn't comply. Gertrude then handed Sylvia a glass Coca-Cola bottle and forced her to masturbate with it for the boys. It was after this incident that Sylvia started to experience incontinence issues. As a result of this, Gertrude decided to increase her punishments of the 16-year-old. Banaszewski decided that Sylvia was unfit to live with everyone else, locking her in the basement with no washroom facilities. And as such, Sylvia was forced to defecate and urinate on the floor. So Gertrude deemed it was necessary that Sylvia needed a bathing regime to clean her. This consisted of binding Sylvia's wrists and ankles and then dunking her into a clawfoot bathtub of scalding water, sometimes randomly and multiple times a day. Realizing that she needed help in dealing with Sylvia, Gertrude decided to take on one of the 14-year-old neighborhood boys, Ricky Hobbs, as her assistant. Hobbs was trained to follow Banaszewski's orders blindly and without question. It was at this point that Gertrude's children decided that they could start making money off of Sylvia, charging the neighborhood children a nickel to gawk at the naked 16-year-old or to push her down the stairs. Sylvia was constantly kept naked and rarely fed. She was often forced by Gertrude and her son John to clean the basement and was allowed by the pair to eat her own feces and drink her own urine when she was hungry and thirsty. The mental, emotional, and physical abuse endured by Sylvia up to this point at the hands of those that not only lived in the home, but also outside of the home, unfortunately would not be the worst. Jenny had managed to contact their older sister, Diana, who was married with a family of her own. She explained to Diana the horrific things that were being done to Sylvia in the Banaszewski home and instructed her to contact the police. Initially, Diana ignored the letter, believing that Jenny wasn't happy with being punished and was probably making up the stories. Later, Diana would come by to visit her sisters. However, Gertrude refused to let the eldest sister into her home. Gertrude explained that their father, Lester, had contacted her and informed her that Diana wasn't to be allowed in the home. When Diana questioned this, Gertrude threatened that she would contact the police and have her arrested for trespassing. Concerned about her sisters, Diana contacted social services. During their visit, Gertrude had told them that she kicked Sylvia out of the home as she was physically unclean and was a prostitute, and that Sylvia had since run away. Gertrude had threatened to throw Jenny down the basement with her sister if she didn't go along with the story. So, when the social worker questioned Jenny, the 14-year-old confirmed that what Gertrude said was true. This was evidence enough for the social worker to close the case, with no follow-up to the Banaszewski home required. On October 20th, Gertrude contacted the police to have Robert Hanlon, a local youth in the neighborhood, arrested for trespassing. Robert had claimed that the Banaszewski children had stolen items from him and that he was there to collect them. When Gertrude refused to let Robert in, he attempted to sneak into the home to take his items back. As Robert was being placed into the back of the police car, Phyllis Vermillion approached the police and explained that she overheard the argument between Gertrude and Robert. At this point, Phyllis had the opportunity to tell the police about what she had witnessed regarding Sylvia. However, she did not. On October 21st, Gertrude told two of her children, John and Stephanie, and Stephanie's 15-year-old boyfriend, Coy Hub, to bring Sylvia up from the basement and tie her to the bed. She told Sylvia that if she could control and hold her bladder through the night, that she would be allowed to sleep upstairs again. However, when Gertrude checked on Sylvia the next morning, she discovered that the 16-year-old had wet the bed. 
Gertrude made Sylvia a dress and took her to the living room where she was again forced to perform a strip tease for her sons and some of the neighborhood boys. Gertrude didn't stop there, though. She would force Sylvia to masturbate again with a glass Coca-Cola bottle in front of the boys. After humiliating Sylvia, Gertrude then brought up Sylvia's lies about her daughters, Paula and Stephanie, and told Sylvia that since she branded her daughters, she was going to do the same thing to Sylvia. Gertrude forced the young girl to strip naked and then tied her down and gagged her while one of the Banaszewski children heated a sewing needle. With the hot needle, Gertrude proceeded to carve and burn the letters I and part of the letter M into Sylvia's stomach. She then turned to Ricky Hobbs and told him to continue and spell out the phrase, I am a prostitute and proud of it. Once satisfied with the markings, Gertrude left the naked, gagged, and tied up Sylvia in the room. It was at this point that Ricky and two of Gertrude's daughters, Paula and Shirley, decided to carve an S into Sylvia's chest. Ricky burned the bottom part of the S and then stopped, ordering Shirley to finish it. It was reported that Shirley made the top curve of the S backwards, leaving Sylvia with the number three engraved in her chest. Ricky then took Sylvia back to the basement and practiced his judo on her before returning home later. Jenny would sneak into the basement in the middle of that night to visit her sister. While speaking with Jenny, Sylvia told her sister, I'm going to die, I can tell. Later in the night, Gertrude brought Sylvia back upstairs and allowed her to sleep in one of the beds. On the morning of October 23rd, Gertrude woke Sylvia up, along with Stephanie, and gave her a bath. After the bath, Paula and Gertrude made Sylvia write a letter that they dictated to her, intending it to look like a runaway letter to her parents. The following is what was written in that letter. I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said that they would pay me if I give them something. So I got in the car, and they all got what they wanted. And when they got finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach, I am a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything that I could do, just to make Gertie mad, and cause Gertie more money than she's got. I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I have also cost Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay, and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all of her kids. Gertrude would instruct Sylvia not to sign the letter. It was at this time that Gertrude began to plan for John and Jenny to take Sylvia to a nearby garbage dump and leave her there to die. Overhearing this plan, Sylvia took the chance and made a run for the front door. However, due to her frail state, she was not quick enough and was dragged back by Gertrude before she could reach the front door. Gertrude would punish Sylvia for this by beating her in the mouth with a kitchen curtain rod. John then took Sylvia back down to the basement and tied her up. She was offered crackers to which she reportedly replied, Feed it to the dog. It's hungrier than I am. Gertrude then reportedly punched Sylvia in the stomach before leaving the basement. On October 24th, Gertrude returned to the basement where Sylvia was being kept and attempted to bludgeon her. First, she tried hitting her with a chair, but missed, and broke it against the wall. Then she tried hitting Sylvia in the face with a paddle, but she reportedly swung the paddle in such a wide arc that it came back against her own face. Ricky would step in and beat Sylvia unconscious with a broomstick. During that night, and into the morning of October 25th, Sylvia beat the basement floor with a scoop part of an iron shovel that was nearby. Gertrude had Stephanie and Ricky bring up Sylvia from the basement on October 26th as she wanted to give her a bath. 
the two kids laid the fully clothed 16-year-old in the bathtub. However, shortly after, they realized that Sylvia was not breathing and took her out. Stephanie attempted CPR, but it was already too late. Sylvia was dead. Gertrude told her children to take Sylvia's body back to the basement and strip it naked. She would then instruct Ricky to go to a nearby payphone, as there was no working telephone in the Banaszewski residence, and contact the police. Upon their arrival, Gertrude handed the officers a letter from Sylvia. While there, Jenny managed to whisper to one of the officers, Get me out of here and I will tell you everything. This, along with her statement, and the discovered body of Sylvia, was enough to prompt the police to arrest Gertrude, Paula, John, Ricky, and Coy for Sylvia's murder. Other children present at that time were Mike Monroe, Randy Lepper, Judy Duke, and Anna Sisko, all four of which were arrested for injury to a person. Gertrude, her children, Ricky Hobbs, and Coy Hubbard were all held without bail pending their trial. The charges brought against Mike Monroe, Randy Lepper, Anna Sisko, and Judy Duke were dismissed. Stephanie's lawyer was able to get her a separate trial, but before it began, the district attorney dropped the murder charges against her. An autopsy was performed on Sylvia Likens before the trial began. It was discovered that there were over 100 cigarette burns to her body, in addition to the various second and third degree burns, severe bruising, and muscle and nerve damage. It was discovered that in her final moments, Sylvia bit through her lips, almost severing each of them. Her vaginal cavity was nearly swollen shut. The autopsy did prove that Sylvia was never pregnant, and in fact she was still a virgin. The official cause of death was brain swelling, internal hemorrhaging of the brain, and shock. The trial commenced in May 1966. The case of the state of Indiana versus Gertrude, John, and Paula Banaszewski, and Ricky Hobbs and Coy Hubbard was not without some additional drama. During Paula's time in court, she had to be rushed to the hospital to give birth, and ended up naming her child Gertrude. The prosecution was looking for the death penalty for all involved in Sylvia's murder, including John and Ricky, who were just 13 and 14 respectively. Gertrude and the children's cases were made worse due to the fact that each of the individuals were being represented by a different lawyer. Each lawyer attempted to offload the blame from their client to the others involved, despite the fact that they were all being tried together. Gertrude's defense was that she was frail, weak, and chronically ill, being unable to prevent or perpetuate the abuse Sylvia exhibited. The lawyers for the Banzuski children attempted to shift the blame onto the other children involved. Gertrude would eventually give testimony that would damage her defense, recounting odd tales of Sylvia being a neighborhood prostitute and of her rendezvous with married, middle-aged men, as well as accusing her of frequently starting fights in the home. In order to corroborate some of Gertrude's accusations, one of her youngest daughters, Marie, was called to the stand. At first, Marie had confirmed that what her mother was saying was true. However, after being cross-examined, the young girl admitted that everything she said was a lie. Marie then recounted in graphic and blunt detail how her mother and siblings tortured and murdered Sylvia. John, Ricky Hobbs, and Coy Hubbard were each convicted of voluntary manslaughter and sentenced to 18 months in juvenile detention. By the time of his release, 17-year-old Ricky suffered a nervous breakdown and became a heavy chain smoker, dying at the young age of 21 from lung cancer. John Banaszewski changed his name and worked as a truck driver, then a real estate agent, and later a lay minister. He would move on with his life, becoming married and having three children. 17-year-old Paula was found guilty of second-degree murder, 
charge that she would later appeal. Paula would be granted a new trial in 1971. However, before that trial began, Paula struck a plea deal and pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter. She only served three years before being paroled. After her release, she changed her name, married, and moved to Iowa and became a teacher's aide. In 2012, Paula's true identity would be revealed due to an anonymous tip and would be let go from her job as a result. Not much more is known about the children after their release. Gertrude was found guilty of first-degree murder. To the shock of most citizens in Indiana, the 37-year-old mother of seven did not receive the death penalty, but life in prison without parole. Gertrude later appealed and was also granted a new trial in 1971. She was found guilty again, but this time she was only sentenced to 18 years to life. During this time, she became a model prisoner, working in the sewing shop and becoming a mother-like figure to the younger female inmates. By the time that she was eligible for parole, she even earned the prison nickname Mum. Gertrude would be granted parole on December 4, 1985, due to good behavior, a decision that would not be welcomed by Jenny Likens and other individuals, who picketed outside the prison protesting her release. During her parole hearing, Gertrude stated, I'm not sure what role I had in it, because I was on drugs. I never really knew her. I take full responsibility for whatever happened to Sylvia. Despite 4,500 signatures and the protests, Gertrude was still granted parole. Five years following her release, Jenny Likens and her family would have some relief. The woman who brutally and cruelly tortured and killed Sylvia died from lung cancer on June 16, 1990, at the age of 60. According to Jenny, both she and Sylvia did have opportunities to tell adults at church or school of the abuse that they endured. However, they didn't as they feared it would worsen. Both young women couldn't conceive the possibility of authorities coming to protect them from the torture that was inflicted. Jenny never blamed her parents for what had happened to her sister, saying, My mum was a really good mum. All she did was trust Gertrude. The cruel and horrific torture, abuse, and murder of Sylvia Likens in the Banaszewski residence would spark several fiction and non-fictional adaptations, including the books House of Evil, The Indiana Torture Slaying by Natty Bumpo, the Girl Next Door by Jack Ketchum. There was also a movie based off of this book in 2007 with the same title. And the book By Sanction of the Victim by Patty Wheat. And a 2007 film titled An American Crime. Although it shocked me to read about how much Sylvia suffered at the hands of her captors, mentally, emotionally, and physically, I was disturbed by some of the actions of the children involved. Looking back, I could understand that maybe the children were just as fearful of their mother as Sylvia and Jenny were, or that Gertrude may have already inflicted similar punishments on her children. I found myself becoming very irritated and upset that the new neighbors did not report the strange behavior and markings on Sylvia. Early on, after the first abuse started, Sylvia was allowed outside of the home to go to school and church. I had to remind myself that during this time, not too many individuals would get involved with another family's issue and that there were times where some of these types of treatments, the beatings with the belt, for example, were more common than they would be today. The other part of this story that I found frustrating was that no death penalty was given to Gertrude, given the fact that she was responsible for a lot of the torture and abuse, and was also the one who encouraged the children's part in most of this as well. Want to share your thoughts about this episode? Head on over to our Instagram page, Blood, Bodies, and Bones Podcast. Or you can find us on Facebook at Blood Bodies and Bones Podcast. The links are in the episode description below.
If you like this episode, why not subscribe to Blood, Bodies, and Bones so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Our first two episodes, The Villisca Axe Murders and The Clutter Family, are available for you to listen to right now. Thank you for joining me and letting me share the story with you. I will be back on December 15th with a brand new episode. Until then, remember to keep your doors locked, your curtains closed, and maybe leave that light on when you go to sleep. Thank you.